One thing that uh, being gone for a couple of weeks does for you is you realize when you come back how blessed you are. And uh, we are truly blessed. Thank you, Kendra and Mark. Thank you for your work back there and doing that video. And thank you, Connie, for reading so beautifully. Uh, wonderful passage. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we do ask that uh, this morning <clears throat> you help us today to live within our limits. Uh, allow ourselves to simply be a creature in the presence of our Creator. Father, we ask that you forgive us when we kind of take ourselves too seriously or take responsibilities that aren't ours to take. That when we think the whole world depends on us, today we just want to be in your presence. Father, we believe that you are the ruler of all things and that you rule with wisdom and righteousness and justice. And you have called us to be your servants, but not only to serve, but also to be your friends. And how awesome is that? Holy Spirit, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, we ask your counsel and we ask for your strength. We ask for your knowledge so that we can fear the Lord the way we are supposed to. And we ask that you fall on us, your people, and revive us. That you have called us and you have gifted us to be your servants. And so we ask for those gifts, especially of faith, hope, and love, that they be firmly established within us. We trust you, Lord, when you said your mercies are new every morning. We trust you that we can leave the past behind, leave those regrets forgotten, and depend on your mercies. We ask that sin lessen its grip on us that lies and ex exploitation get exposed for what they are. We ask you to teach us to use circumstances in our lives that can be redeemed to produce fruit for your glory. We ask that you redeem our disappointments so that they become patience. We ask that you redeem our successes so that they become thankfulness. We ask that you redeem our suspicions and cynicism so that they be converted to acts of hospitality. Redeem the times we were correct, corrected or rebuked so that they may become characters of perseverance. We ask that you redeem our praises so that it becomes humility. Father, we let us see our pleasures and our conveniences as your gifts, not entitlements. Teach us to use your, the pain for endurance. And so, Lord Jesus, we pray now that we need an encounter with you today. And so, Father, we come to know your grace today in a special way, to embrace our own finite smallness again. And may your word feed us today as your spirit may lead and revive us. And we ask in Jesus' name, amen. I have a new Bible for my birthday. <laughs> It's, it's a translation I've been wanting for a long time, and Sue surprised me with it this year. Um, where are we? We're, let's see, I kind of forgotten where we were. Uh, we're going to finish up our series this morning on uh, the church. I'm calling this Face for Grace, Recovering Our Family Values. Uh, around the turn of the century, there was a technological development that it actually just changed the entire world. It, it, just, it just revamped everything. Um, 
it began to connect people from one part of the world to the other part of the world. Uh, somebody, a plantation worker in India and a, a newspaper reader in Germany were suddenly bound together and that news could be traveled from one side of the world to the other almost instantaneously. And uh, that was started, uh, it was invented years before, but then they started laying cables underneath the ocean so that Europe and America was connected and it created kind of what we, the, the modern news uh, uh, enterprise and, and uh, the modern news industry that we have today. Uh, I'm not talking about the, uh, the 20th century, I'm talking about the 19th century. And the cables that were laid under the ocean are not fiber optics, but they were telegraph table cables. And when this came on, it, the, the, the evangelists were saying, telling us, telling the world that this is going to be a whole new golden age for humanity. This is, this, that the world would be connected, that the world would be united, that uh, it could maybe even end wars as we know it. Well, that was the telegraph, the mechanical World Wide Web. Uh, some historians call it the, the, uh, the Victorian Internet. And that was the promises. Well, historians say that, that history doesn't really repeat itself, but it does rhyme. Well, as I described that, it, you, can, you can see the rhyme and you can hear the rhyming going on right now. Uh, we have the Internet now that just connects everything, and we're just thinking, okay, this is, this is the golden age. And yet what has happened was just the opposite, that we are connected... And we're not more unified, we're more conflicted. We live in a world now that's, that's full of anxiety. Uh, before, we were used to a world that was a complicated world, but it was linear. And we're kind of in this gray area. We don't even know what the future's going to hold. All I can tell you is that change is here to stay, okay? That's the only thing I can tell you. But we lived in this world before in the modern age where it was kind of linear. It was complicated, but it was linear. In other words, you could get from A to B by following certain steps. The most famous, of course, was Henry Ford. He took this complicated machinery, an automobile, and was able to break it down into pieces and then able to mass-produce cars for the country. And that was true in everything. Uh, it was true in church work. I mean, I, in the 70s and 80s especially, there was just this fountain of... Uh, a flood of, of books on how to grow your church. Do these things and, you, and, and you'll have church growth. We had, uh, we had manuals and guidelines of how to plant a church when we were, we were on the mission field. And you follow these lines and everything would happen. And when I was in youth ministry, I, I developed youth ministry using uh, the Sun Life Strategy out of Moody Bible Institute. And it was a step-by-step -step process of how you take your kids to one stage and get them to another stage and you could get from A to B in a very simple process by following this line of logic. Well, now we live in a very complex world, a connected world, a network. I don't care how individualist you think you are, you are connected to the network. And when everything used to be centralized and we could defend and we could look to experts and universities or doctors or, or hospitals or government and, and kind of get the idea of what things were going... Well, now it's, it's just totally dispersed. We now have influencers. And the interesting thing about in the 19th and 20, early 20th century was that be, when the telegraph came ha happened and the, and the world was connected, we thought it was going to be great, but it just caused anxiety. Businessmen came addicted to it like a drug. And like all drugs, they always have severe side effects. 
women, there was this really incredible uptick in women coming to doctors because of, of nervousness and negative feelings, and they just diagnosed it as hysteria. While men went to the doctor to get diagnosed as brain fever and nervousness. Well, now we're experiencing the same thing. It may not be repeating itself, but it certainly is rhyming. And I even came across this headline in the New York Times, and there's another one similar in The Guardian. Young creators are burning out and breaking down. Many people who have found fame on TikTok are struggling with mental health issues. Even the influencers are suffering from anxiety. So what does this have to do with the church? The church can be a non-anxious presence in this age of anxiety. We have a golden opportunity here. We, have a, a, we live in an age that we didn't get to choose. We didn't get to choose our location. We didn't get to choose the, the culture that we're, we exist in. We don't get to create another culture. That would be a fake culture, a fake reality. Fake realities always produce fake people. This is something we are, we are made for. But the problem is, <clears throat> and we'll get to this in a minute, why the church is so important in this time period, but the problem is we want to look for strongholds. Christians and non-Christians alike. When we feel insecure, when we feel fearful, and we don't know what's happening, and we're kind of in this, this, this place of, of, of change and, and rocking, and a, like a boat rocking on the, on the ocean, we want to look for a stronghold. And a stronghold is, a, is when tribes used to come together, and they built these cities, and they built walls around them. And it was basically to protect some, these people from other human beings, basically, to keep the enemy out, to keep the, the evil out. And we don't build those cities necessarily like that today, but we still look for these strongholds, but they're man-made strongholds. It's a biblical metaphor that's, that's very common in the Old Testament that we use to protect ourselves from other human beings. Psalm 18 describes people who have left the stronghold and they tremble with fear. The thing is, that these man-made strongholds are counterintuitive. They're, they're, they, do, they, they end up with the opposite of what we really want. And it's the opposite of what God wants. God wants us to find Him, our stronghold in Him, which is totally the opposite. Strongholds, man-made strongholds, they create conflict. They create hostility. They create anxiety. Because the people in the stronghold begin to think, okay, what, we're, what we all believe and what we, our meaning and our identity, we're all right. And those people out there are all wrong. And in our stronghold, we are the best. We are the most moral. We are the most virtuous. And so what happens is they start to compete. And one stronghold wants to dominate the other stronghold. That's what man-made stronghold is. Psalm 52.7 says, Look, here is the man who would not make God his stronghold. He trusted in his great wealth and was confident about his plan to destroy others. That's what happens in a stronghold. We get prideful, we get arrogant, and we seek to dominate others. The church is something else. Finding our stronghold in God means we, don't, we, 
we go from hostility to hospitality. The church is different. We are different, or we're supposed to be different. We go from hostility to hospitality. We live in this anxious age, it's profound changes. We are in between these different eras that, that just we don't know what it is, what exactly what we're looking for. And so our knee-jerk reaction is to seek the security, seek comfort, and that becomes the highest value. Our comfort and security becomes our highest value. But the problem with that is, is that we sacrifice growth. We've admitted to say, I'm fine with being immature, spiritually and personally. This conflict connected actually produces more conflict, produces more anxiousness, and then dominance. But God has a different idea. He has the idea of the church. This is different. This is when we see, this is people who seek our stronghold in God. We cannot build the church. All we can do is be the church. That's all we're asked to do, is be the church. So what does the church have to offer this conflict, conflicted, complex, anxious world? What do we have to offer? Well, I'd like to close out this series on the church and just give us six, six things that I think the church can offer a world that we live in. What is the church giving? What does the church represent? What are our family values that can minister to this conflicted, complex, anxiety-ridden age that we live in? And they're go we're just going to go over them quickly. But there are books, sermons, series sermons, you know, written on each one of these. So we're just going to touch on them. But what does the church have for us? What does the church offer a complex and anxious world? First of all, the church tells us that we are beloved. The church tells us that we are beloved. Martin Luther, some people think Martin Luther was bipolar. Because... He would have this, in one moment, he would have this incredible zeal and love and passion for God. And then the next moment, he was just be in the depths of despair and depression. And when he would get into those moments of depth of despair and depression, he would tell himself, Martin, you're baptized. And what he meant by that is not that the, the baptism was some magic formula and it suddenly made everything okay or it suddenly guaranteed his place in heaven or whatever. What he meant by that is that he is identified as a beloved child of God. I am beloved. That's what baptism tells us. When Jesus came up out of the water after his baptism, what did God say? You are my beloved son. This is the son I love, and I'm well pleased with him. It's not that that's when God started loving him. It's when it was identified to the whole world around him that this is a beloved son. And when we get baptized, it's the same thing. We are declaring, I am a beloved child of God. Sue and I have talked about this word a lot, and she says she loves this word. And she says it, it came from a, a time she spent with a spiritual director back in, in when we were in Iowa. In, in, actually, the, she was in South Dakota. And uh, the, the spiritual director was a nun who said, you just need to be beloved. And she said, it is a command. Be loved. That's what it is. And the church tells us to be loved loved. We are beloved. So the good news is that I have for you this morning is you are a beloved child of God. The bad news is you don't get to choose your siblings. <laughs> we just have to live with it. 
we are, we are baptized into this wonderful, big, beautiful, dysfunctional family called the church. But the church tells us that we are loved. Now, I have a really mixed background, Christian background. I have this strange background of, of, um, of Methodism that began with my grandfather, Methodist preacher, and I've mentioned him before, Big Daddy. He was a very big part of my life. But it was all hellfire and brimstone and holiness. This was the holiness movement. And through my, through my childhood, it was that through that. And then in the, and then in the uh, teen years, I was uh, baptized the Holy Spirit and spoke in tongues and all, the, all these kind of things in the, in the teen years. And so all these things are passing. And then now I'm, I decided to go into full-time ministry and be a missionary and then be a, 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 a college teacher and then a, a pastor. And so this is where I am. And all through those times, I've had people love me and I've experienced this incredibly absurd mercy that I am a beloved child of God. And it is absurd, but it is real. And people have, have loved me all the way in maybe some very strange ways, but I know that, that I am a beloved child of God. And you are a beloved child of God. That's what the church tells us. That's what the church has for us today. But the church also tells us that we are fallen. That we are fallen. In the Methodist church, one of the parts of the liturgy that I liked in the Methodist church was this prayer of confession. And we would read it every Sunday. And yes, I know the things, the prayers that we read can just be very rote, you know, and, and just meaningless if you don't think about them too much. But what I liked about it is that all together, as a church, we all were on the same level. We all admitted the same thing, that we are fallen and we need forgiveness. And we were on equal footing. They were in the same state of being broken or damaged, rebellious, selfish, etc. That we all have the same need. And our reluctance to admit that is what keeps so many people away from church. That people think that, that we have to have a different facade to come to church. That we have, you know, it's like those before and after pictures. And people think that church people are always want to be the after picture. And we don't ever want to come as the before picture. But we all are the before picture. It's like in the middle of the pandemic when the, when the gym opened back up. And I, that's where I made some, a lot of friends and I really wanted to get back there. But I felt like I needed to lose a few pounds before I go to the gym. <laughs> I'd be too embarrassed, you know. God, that guy really got out of shape. What? He... And, you know, we've known, we've known people... You know, normally women who want to clean the house before the house cleaner comes. That's kind of how we feel at the church. But we need to come as the before picture. We are the before picture. You know why Jesus hung out with sinners? Because there were only sinners to hang out with. <laughs> who else is he going to hang out with? We're all there. We're all there. In the ancient church, in the early church, the rite of baptism, according to, to historian uh, Justo Gonzalez, he says in the early church, the, the, they'd go through the baptism rite, and they would separate the men and the women to get baptized, and they would be baptized naked. And they would stand in the water, 
And they would, the idea is that they are totally vulnerable and totally in front of all the sin and the, and the darkness and the selfishness that they had, totally vulnerable, to be baptized. And they were asked the question to renounce the devil, the demons, and evil. And I still use that question when I baptize people. Do you renounce the devil, the demons, and evil? And when they do, they get dunked in the river, and they're given a white robe to signify their new life in Christ. And we don't like to talk about that too much. And when I, talk, when I read about the new, in the Gospels about Jesus, uh, you know, casting demons out of people and, and evil out of people, and you know, I kind of go, well, maybe it's epilepsy, maybe it's an illness. And when I'm really thinking, okay, I'm really substituting one improbable thing for another improbable thing. But I think that loses something of what evil is all about. That there's something more to that. Alexander Schmemann, who wrote this wonderful little book called For the Life of the World, he says, evil is not the mere absence of good, but the presence of dark and irrational power. And it is real. And when we take all those things in us, this, this hate and, and fear, and it's not just that we are, oh, we're flawed, or we're broken, or we're, nobody's perfect. It's not that idea. It's like taking all the hate, hate and fear and greed and jealousy and materialism and pride and they all kind of come together as a choir almost and start to consume our identity. And so these, these new early Christians would stand on there and they'd say, I am a child of God and I renounce anything and anybody else who says otherwise. And they renounce it. The thing is that these things start to get together in ourselves and they start to form a, a, an identity of, them, of themselves in our bodies and in our souls and they start to use these names. Instead of using a child of God, they will call us an addict, or they will call us a sinner, or a slut, or a failure, or fat, or worthless, or faker, or screw-up, or whatever else label you want. And when we say before Christ, say, I am a child of God, and I renounce anything else that says differently. When they get baptized, they renounce two very important things. They renounce evil, and they renounce death. And death is the result of that fallenness. And they renounce both of those. That there is no ladder to holiness in Christianity. There is no self-improvement plan in Christianity. There is just death and resurrection. Death and resurrection repeated every single day, every single hour. Death and resurrection until ultimately there is a physical resurrection after death. One of my favorite quotes is the one by Brennan Manning out of the Ragamuffin Gospel, which is another wonderful little book if you want to read something that just will, will do your soul good. He's a, he was a monk who was finally left the convent because he was an alcoholic. And he says, I admit I am a bundle of paradoxes. I believe and I doubt. I hope and I get discouraged. I love and I hate. I feel bad about feeling good. I feel guilty about not feeling guilty. I am trusting and suspicious. I am honest and I still play games. Aristotle said I am a rational animal. I say I am an angel with an incredible capacity for beer. 
I don't know anything, anyone that describes me better than that, except <laughs> beer, I'm just a social drinker, okay. <laughs> Five, number three, the church tells us that we are commissioned. Remember those naked baptized people? When they got out of the water, they were given a white robe. They were also given water to symbolize that they were, they were cleansed on the inside. They were also given milk and honey to symbolize that they had now entered into the promised land. And they were given oil. They were anointed with oil for the priesthood. They are now royal priests. And, and oil is just this great symbol of the presence of God. Moses was given this recipe uh, for oil to, to anoint the temple with so that we could always remember and smell the, the, the presence of God. And every one of them are, were commissioned to be a priest when they were anointed with oil. They were commissioned to be the hands and the feet of Jesus. And I just think about hands, just think about the hands that, that do so much. Hands prepare meals for people. And we have been the recipient of that. People will call us up and say, we want to bring dinner over for you. Can we do that? Hands prepare meals. They plant. They uproot. They, they cook. They they caress, they repair, they rewire, they, they change diapers, they, they tickle giggling kids, and they rub the ears of dogs. Hands can do these things, and when we do these things imitating, the Jesus, imitating our Savior who washed feet, then those activities become sacred. They become priestly. They become ministerial. Just those simple acts, and we've been commissioned to do that. When we follow the teacher, those acts become priestly. We are also commissioned to proclaim the gospel. Jesus and Jesus alone. Christ and Christ alone. Paul says, I know nothing but Christ himself. That's what we preach. And I am convinced that so many churches in America feel like that Christ is not enough, so they're always looking for something else. I think the majority of church splits are caused by people who think Christ is not enough and they're looking for something else. But we proclaim Christ and Him crucified. That's it. That's what we say. You know, there's one institution in America that its sole purpose is to bring hope to society. And that institution is the church. Amen. Our only purpose is to bring hope to other people. That's what we're called to do. That's what we're commissioned to do. Not to convince them that they're all wrong. Not to shame them. We come to bring hope. That's what we're here to do. Amen. The church feeds us. It feeds us with food. Nora Ephron, you might remember, she, uh, she, wrote, she did a bunch of romantic com comedies back in the 80s and 90s. She says, a family is a group of people who eat the same thing for dinner. Well, we're a family that eats the same thing for dinner. For centuries, we have done that. We eat the same thing. We are the family. And Jesus said it. he loved to use the metaphors of food and water and wine as what he is doing, that he's, he's satisfying our hunger, he is satisfying our thirst, he gives us living water, he creates new wine, he talks about the seeds that, that grow, the figs and the bread and the water and the wine. All this is to satisfy this, this deep hunger and need and 
this is what Jesus gives us. This is what the church proclaims. And not only that, it feeds us rest, the Sabbath. It tells us to take a day off, a day off and recognize our Creator. You ever thought about that the, the very, very first Sabbath was right after men and women were formed? In other words, the man and the woman didn't do a thing. They didn't earn that rest. It was God who gave it to them. It's all grace. It's all grace. There is no ladder to holiness, only grace. And the Sabbath points us to that. And so we set apart Sunday to refocus on that, to remind us of that, so that the next six days we can chase after that love of God again over six days, and then we come back and get reminded of it again. And then we go back and work six days and chase after that love, and we get back and get reminded of it again. That this is simply the grace of God. The church anoints us. The church anoints us. The ancients knew the healing power of oils. James says that when you're sick or when you're ill, seek out the elders and have them anoint you with oil. But what I want to mention here, there's a difference between being cured and being healed. And we can be cured either by doctors and medicine, prayers, oil. All those things can be cured. But I feel like the church has been called to heal, to do that long, long, hard work of healing. And oil symbolizes that. And when we anoint people with oil, and I think we, we don't do it enough, but when we anoint people with oil, we are saying we are with you for the long haul, regardless of the outcome. And in Jesus' time, they anointed even people at the point of death. And in the early church, they anointed people at the point of death. Remember when Mary anointed Jesus' feet and he said, leave her alone? He says, she's preparing my burial. This was a priestly act preparing Jesus for burial. And what does that mean? It means it symbolizes that the permanence of the Holy Spirit, the seal of the Holy Spirit, is more permanent than the grave. And that's why we do that. And I, I, I feel like we, we ought to bring back anointing, personally. Bring back anointing with oil. It soothes. It cares. It feels good. It's touched. The human touch. And the church welcomes us. If 1 Corinthians 12 teaches anything at all that Connie was reading this morning, it's that it welcomes us, that we are united. 22 to 25 says, on the contrary, those members that seem to be weaker are essential, and those members we consider less honorable we clothe with greater honor, and our unrepresentable members, unpresentable members are clothed with dignity, but our presentable members do not, do not need this. Instead, God has blended together the body giving greater honor to the lesser member so that they may be no division in the body, not the members may have mutual concern for one another, but the members will have mutual concern for one another. In other words, he's saying the people that, that seem to have honor, honor automatically, well, that's fine, but we need to bring everyone else to that to receive the equal amount of honor. And not only does that apply, I think, in a local congregation, but I think it applies in the worldwide church. 
we kind of have this idea that the, the American church is the gold standard for churches. Well, I think we can learn a lot from our brothers in Latin America and in Africa and the churches that are persecuted in China. We bring those up to honor them. Not higher, just with the saying that we honor them. Most of you know that Sue uh, fractured her tibia on a, uh, a bike accident, on a back bike crash. It's a uh, right leg. She has to stay off of it completely for like two months before she can do anything else with it. But I, what if I came home and said, looked at it and said, well, what's the big deal, honey? Your left leg's fine. <laughs> what are you worried about? We all know that's not how the body works. That when the left leg or the right leg is injured, it limits the whole body. It affects everything. When one member is hurting, it affects us all. And when one member is flourishing, we get to get some of that flourishing kind of sloughed off on us. That's what it's like. And this is, requires an act of humility and repentance and listening. I think there's four magic words that can keep a body together. And that is, I could be wrong. I just might be wrong here. And that's like magic lotion that can keep us together. I could be wrong about this. But that takes humility. It takes repentance. It takes inclusion. And inclusion is different than diversity. Diversity is like, oh, we'd love, you know, we'd love to have a diverse church with multiple races and ethnicities and, and different opinions. That's great. But diversity makes us feel good. But what Paul is talking about is full inclusion. Now, that's different. That's full inclusion. That's when whoever walks in that door, we include them. We bring them in. There is a difference. But it takes humility. Jesus gave us that really pesky command of love your neighbor. We have these nemesis that's really hard that don't exactly bring out the holiest reactions in us. But we are told to love them. And we must learn to love them because if we don't learn to love our enemies, then we can't love our own soul, I believe. And we're not going to love the soul of anything else either. So we have to learn to do this. We have to learn to include. I have a bunch of books in my um, library on the church. And one of, I, one of, one of my favorites uh, she was writing in the foreword. She said, I, I was trying to struggle with the title for this book. And the title that I really wanted to give was this one. Jesus went back to heaven and all he left me was this lousy church. <laughs> well, I understand that. I have been deeply hurt by the church. But I've also been deeply loved. And I've been deeply healed in the church. And my sister, I have two sisters and a brother. We all grew up in the same family. We were there in church every time the doors were open. But my siblings don't completely left Christianity. And years ago, my sister, one of my sisters asked me, why did it stick with you? And I have pondered that for a long, long time. And I really have not come up with the answers, deep answers. All I know that when the church is working well, it is the best thing on earth. Now, I also recognize that church pain is also painful. 
But when it's working well, it works really well. So Jesus has this really odd habit of allowing ordinary, screwed-up people to introduce him to other people. And that's the way it is. And I love that. And I'm convinced that I cannot love God unless I love God's people. That I need to leave my man-made stronghold, whatever that may be, and be in the presence of God. And this is the gift that the church can give in this age. We can be this non-anxious presence in an age full of anxiety. What a gift. What a gift. And you may be wired to be an, to be an individualist. That may be your, your, your present. You may have thought the time during the pandemic was heaven. Hey, I get to stay at home, be by myself, get to watch church on, in my pajamas. That may be great, but I am convinced that we cannot follow Christ and be isolated at the same time. Amen. We have to be with people. It is not a viable option. That transformation must take place in the context of a community or it's not real transformation. That we come together as a people to worship God to follow God, and sometimes to wrestle with God. But we do it in a community. One last quote from um, uh, Rachel Held Evans, uh, who passed away not too long ago. And uh, she writes this. She went through a phase where she was leaving the church. And her dad is a, a, teaches at a Bible college in Tennessee, and she says this, she says, Christianity isn't meant to simply be believed. It is meant to be lived, shared, eaten, spoken, and enacted in the presence of other people. They remind me that try as I may, I cannot be a Christian on my own. I need community. I need the church. Let's pray together. Father, we are thankful for the body. A source of frustration sometimes, but something that you said you loved, and so we love it too. Father, we give you permission to change our hearts, to work in our lives, and teach us to love the people that you love. In the name of Jesus, amen.